SequelCast 2 is part of the Batman Podcast Network. For more information, go to batman-on-film.com. You really turned out to be a snake, Billy. When they catch you, they're going to dry gulch your stinking bones. I'm just trying to get my friends to old Mexico. We need some pesos. Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2, a podcast looking at films in a franchise one movie at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergi. With me is William Thrasher. I know the value of a bone-handled knife. Every time I go over a hill, I see cars drive by, <laughs> and I get to do it in big old makeup. Yeah, we are talking about Yun Guns 2, uh, released in 1990, directed by Jeff Murphy, written by John Fusco, starring Emilio Estevez, Kiefer Sutherland, Lou Diamond Phillips, Christian Slater, William Peterson, and Alan Ruck, and Baltazar Getty, um, had music by Alan Silvestri. Uh, as the credits say, song by John Bon Jovi, but that only means two songs over the end credits. Um, Though he does have a cameo in this movie. A very brief cameo, and also... Uh, Bon Jovi, um, under the name John Bon Jovi, released a solo album of uh, music from and inspired by Young Guns 2. Which, you know what it doesn't include? Blaze of Glory, the one song people know? or No, it doesn't include Dead or Alive, the Bon Jovi song everyone thinks about when they think about this movie. <laughs> Even though funny. it's not in the movie, and it's not on the soundtrack, and it's not in the the disc of songs inspired by this movie. So did Dead or Alive, did that come out after the show or before? No, no, it came out before. I actually I did a little looking into this. Apparently they wanted to use that song for this movie, uh-huh. but Bon Jovi was like, well, it doesn't really work. It's about people on bikes thinking of themselves like cowboys. It's anachronistic. Let me write new songs for your movie. And that's how he ended up writing those two songs for the initial soundtrack. I mean, I'm sure also he wanted to write new songs for a movie, because that means he would get the chance to get nominated for an Oscar. Oh, yeah, Best Original Song. Um, which it got nominated, and I don't think it won, right? Uh, you know, I don't know. That's one thing that didn't come up in my research. Well, let me pull this up. Blaze of Glory. God, the, I'm looking at the single. It just says John... Uh, it has a Bon Jovi with his full, like, long locks, the 80s hair. Oh, yeah. Even though it, it was what, 1990, the 80s hair stuck around for, for two two more years. As tends to do at the beginning of decades. Um, yeah, so <laughs> it, it was nominated uh, for the 91 Academy Award for Best Original Song, and it lost it to... Give me a minute. Um, I mean, so, I mean, one, one thing I did notice about Young Guns 2, like, this is the one... I think people seem to remember more than the first one for whatever reason. And I'm not quite sure why that is. The box office was around the same as the first one. In in a weird way, well, I'm guessing two things. One, I could see how this movie could leave more of an impression on you than the first one. Um, And that, and I bet this rerun on cable all the time. 
this feels like the right. kind of movie that would always show up on HBO and then USA and then TNT. Mm-hmm. By the way, um, the Saw and Blaze of Glory at Lost in the 91 Oscars to a Stephen Sondheim tune from Dick Tracy, Sooner or Later I Always Get My Man, as huh. performed by Madonna. So Interesting. There you, and Sondheim did uh, quite a few songs for that show, um, for the Dick Tracy, which got a sequel in a sense. Um, did you know that, to hang on to the rights? Yeah, that uh, that Warren Beatty, to, to his, so his production company could, could keep the rights, he did like a Dick Tracy short film completely out of nowhere. I think it maybe only aired like on demand uh, or on TV once. It features Leonard Malton interviewing Warren Beatty as Dick Tracy in character, interspersed with clips from the movie. It's really <laughs> sloppy. I only uh, could make it through part of it. but is, is it as sloppy as that Wheel of Time pilot from a few years ago? <laughs> I've never seen that. They, they did a pilot. It didn't get picked up to series because they did a Shannara show. Uh, the, the, well, that one actually happened. Yeah, so... Not to get too much of a diversion, but yeah, the, there was a Wheel of Time pilot, I think, called like the White Dragon or the Winter Dragon, okay. and it's not even an hour long. Most of it is the main character like wandering through a house in a dream state, calling out his wife's name, uh, and it was made to hold on to the rights, and it did have to broadcast, so they made it really cheap. And then they purchased the block on MTV where they would normally put a late-night infomercial. So it aired on MTV at like 3 in the morning <laughs> on a Sunday. It's interesting to MTV because MTV did end up doing that uh, sort of Shannara show, uh, albeit for two seasons. It, make, it makes me wonder if, if that somehow accidentally triggered it. Although I guess that, that's, that's uh, something for canceled too soon to go into. <laughs> I, I, I think so. And they're... Um... I was just surprised when after the Lord of the Rings movies kicked off, you thought they would have done more fantasy uh, book series as films, and they didn't really do it as much as I would have thought. But, um, I mean, those are quite expensive to make. You have people on horses and costumes and special effects, but we're not talking. But let's get back to Young Guns 2. Um, Which has people and horses and costumes and special effects. Uh, yes, yes. And um, as the poster says, the West just got wilder. And uh, at the beginning of this film uh, is a nice little fake out. It fooled me, at least. Yeah, it, it, it took me by surprise, too. And again, it's one of those things where this probably makes a bigger impression on the audience than the intro to the first film, which is just that grainy footage of all the characters uh, firing their guns at the camera. So this, it's all dramatic shots of a cowboy on a horse going through a desert with, you know, heat, heat mirage going on all around him, the somber, uh, you know, old Westy type music playing. You know, we see that this is a very old man. He comes over, and then at the end of the credits, he comes over a ridge, and there's an interstate highway. And yep, cars and are cars. zipping back and forth. And so this film posits that, which, I mean, makes sense because it's a, it's a sequel, but it, it does the twist that Bela the Kid was not killed, as uh, history said. He is still alive in the 1950s, meeting up with a reporter, and that's kind of the wraparound story. Well, no. no, it's not a reporter, it's a lawyer. Oh, sorry, a lawyer. Um, yeah, because yeah, he wants to get a pardon. Yeah, he wants to get a, and a pardon from, from uh, the governor for all his crimes, and... This is something that's interesting is so this is based on a man named Bushy Bill Roberts who was an old grizzled cowboy who towards the end of his life claimed to be Billy the Kid. 
and claim right. that he did did escape justice and that he did kind of like hang out in Mexico and eventually come north once the, you know the heat had died down and he'd gotten a little older and he swore up to his grave that he was Billy the Kid although people have disputed it um, and he died in the middle of the 1950s. And this is something that I think gets overlooked in both movies and in our own concept of, of history. Like all those past historical errors, there were some people who who survived. I mean, they, uh, so like, yeah, they, they were cowboys alive in the 1950s because they just held on. You know, they, just like there are a handful of World War One veterans alive today. And so this, it's not impossible that that a Western folk hero could have been alive in the 50s. Uh, Whether Bushy Bill Roberts was that man, uh, who knows? Uh, I guess that that really can't be proven unless we can find Billy the Kid's grave and his grave and compare DNA uh, or something. Uh, But anyway, he, but it's, it's, uh, it's just a lot of, this is what's strange. It's, it's Emilio Estevez in old man makeup I like the old man makeup. I think it works. It looks like a guy whose skin has just been leathered by the desert sun. But then whenever he speaks, it's such a forced, raspy old man voice. Yeah, exactly. The, the makeup is good and actually pretty subtle. It's not, not too thick. It doesn't look like a Halloween mask. But when he speaks, as we were kind of hinting at at the intro of the show, I'm going to tell you a story of how I like whiskey and my baked beans. I mean, it, it's just... And there's a lot of narration in this film, and it's not really needed. It almost strikes me as a as a vanity thing. And uh, I, I tweeted this out when I was watching the movie. Why not just cast Emilio Estevez's father, Martin Sheen, as the old Billy the Kid? Huh. They look alike. I, I wouldn't say they look exactly alike, but that would have added some a nice kind of cameo in there. And That definitely know. could have worked. Uh, yeah. Although I, I bet... I, if he was approached at all, I bet they couldn't afford him. Um, right. I mean, because he was, was quite, he still is quite a busy actor. I keep on forgetting he was Uncle Ben in the Peter Garfield Spider-Man movies. Yeah. But this is, but this creates our whole like framing device, which the first movie didn't have, and this is this it creates kind of a schism because if if we are to believe that this man uh, is. Uh, is not Billy the Kid, then he's just lying the whole movie. Uh, and all of this is absolute fiction. Why he would want a pardon if he's not Billy the Kid, who knows? Unless, that would, unless of course, be, getting that pardon would legitimize his lie. But if he is Billy the Kid, then what we are seeing is a self-aggrandizing story told by a sociopath to make himself sound awesome. And I find that to also be a bit unsatisfying. But on top of that, whether he's telling the truth or lying, since the movie is told as his flashback slash story, it includes details he was not there to witness. So we can only assume he's making them up whole cloth or putting them together from things he found out decades later. I I mean, as neat as the reveal on the opening is with, with the cars and stuff, and it's in the 50s, um, if this were my movie, I would just not do the wrap around and take out the voiceover altogether. It really isn't needed. I don't think it adds anything uh, to the movie. You don't get a really like gut punch thing at the end. Uh, still, despite the fact you have a wrap around thing, you you have like the end of the first one. It has those uh, 
chirons on the screen saying what happened to the different characters. And and speaking of what happened to the characters, and this is where it creates a problem whether we believe this is Billy the Kid or not. So like in the first one, many of these characters are real people who were gunfighters in the Old West. Um, most of them lived until the 1920s, but in this movie they all die. Yes, because you have to... I don't know, give, give some stakes or, or put them in danger or Well, they, I or mean, something. they're still and, being it, shot at. They're in danger, yes. but, like, it, it, it means, like, regardless, because we have the historical record, it means regardless of whether this is Billy the Kid or not, he is lying about the fates of these men, and this lawyer, if he's competent, will look into this to see whether or not he's telling the truth. Well, and I'm and, glad you talked about the, the lying part, because I... I I did some research of, uh, you know, interviews done at the time for Young Guns 2, and the whole time it's this nonsense of the actors and director harping about that we're devoted to historical accuracy. No, you're not. This is like a teen-beat Western, really. I mean, <laughs> that that you have Billy the Kid a, a, as kind of a crazy scamp as opposed to him being a romanticized figure whistling ballads in a 1920s movie. Like, okay, I suppose that's something, but... It. This is not like a, like like an AMC six-hour or HBO miniseries about the, the true life of Billy the Kid or a. You know, if you want that, go see a Ken Burns documentary. Yeah, and and that's that's the tricky thing about any movie based around real people who really existed, set in a real time and place, is and you know inevitably some things in in the movie are going to diverge from the historical record. Of course, but when. When it's so blatant like this, it's like, well, did they just decide to make the story better? We got to make these changes, or did they just not care at all about what really happened? I mean, you you have to, you know. There's a thing called dramatic license, which I think you're you're getting at, and I, I think you at the end you're trying to make a a good movie, and that usually requires fudging things a bit but but it just struck me as really disingenuous in in the promotion for this movie how how all the actors were like oh this is the real billy the kid and we're doing a honor and it's such a fun time to do a second one uh i I found a really funny interview recently emilio estevez was doing some other show and they said you know we've talked to other cast members and they seem like they'd be up to a young guns three is that something you would do and emilio to his credit laughs and goes what would it be about we finished the story in young guns two (laughs) <laughs> They're all dead. Like what? We're like all older men now. What would you even? He was like, absolutely not. <laughs> I think I think we'll find out in pitch a sequel. Uh, I think so. And you know, with the with all the digital de aging stuff, we have the Martin Scorsese, the Irishman, where it's a lot. What did I say? Irishman, Irishman. Uh, you know, where a lot of it is like De Niro and Joe Pesci and Al Pacino with the de aging. Um, and uh, there, did you see the news recently in China? They're going to be casting James Dean in a supporting role in a movie, and it's signed off by the estate as a CG yes. recreation. I, I guess that I guess something like that was inevitable. Uh, but I, I, I suppose I do find that a bit ghoulish and distasteful. Yeah, I mean, people forget in the '90s there was that '90 uh, there was a commercial for a vacuum cleaner that had Gene Kelly dancing with a vacuum cleaner, but that was. Yeah, there was also that uh, film clips. There was also a Janet Jackson, I believe, Pepsi commercial where she's interacting with a bunch of dead movie stars, including a bit where she dances with Groucho Marx. 
Um, of course, Sky Captain of the World of Tomorrow, they had a hologram mm. of Laurence Olivier, although that was yep. brief. Yep. I'm willing to write that off as just, oh, well, here's a fun little cameo maybe people will recognize. Well, and, and you've had reports at concerts. Uh, I think it's pretty rare because the technology is still expensive, but they, you, they, they've done hologram Michael Jackson or hologram Tupac Shakur at shows where it's like you have a, a computer hologram linked up to a, a live dancer that's like in some studio somewhere and it's all mapped to his movements yeah we, um we know it all puts me in mind of there was a uh, ni- uh mid-90s sci-fi novel called remake uh by mm-hmm. connie willis and it's a dystopian cyberpunk novel about a future where there are no actors there's just people who do editing and motion capture and they just skin the images of dead celebrities onto them uh, and yeah, that's I mean, that's, all filmmaking is wow. in the future is re-releasing old movies but swapping out the actors for CGI versions of different dead actors i that's that's quite prescient um you know marlon brando said something similar and uh what Showtime did a documentary about Marlon Brando where they just found his mountains of audio tapes he would constantly have recording himself talk. And uh, they kind of play it over footage that matches. But he, he says, like, he was talking about being excited for uh, for that kind of a thing. And I think, sure enough, his estate signed off on them using unused uh, clips from um, Superman the Motion Picture in that Superman Returns movie, right, with Brandon Routh. They use some of that... Brando voiceover. I think you're right, yeah. Yeah. Uh, But anyhow, I mean, back to, that's quite the tangent, uh, but that's what we do here in Sequel Cast 2, and Young Guns 2, in a way, like, the the structure of the movie is is like a remake of uh, of the original, sort of, because even though it takes place later in time, you still have the the tradition of, oh, getting the team together, finding your team, and then you're on the run. And what gets things going, you know, Billy's got a new gang, everyone else went their separate ways, just like the the end of the first film, but uh, the cattle wars are over, and the governor of New Mexico wants to bring justice, uh, so... He uh, he sends out Pinkertons and, and sheriffs and whatnot that start rounding up the surviving regulators, uh, but the way Billy the Kid gets roped into it is, you know, he's told, if you turn state's evidence and testify against the other people who are involved in in, in the cattle war, uh, you'll get a full pardon and you'll leave this a free man. We just have to make it, for your own protection, we have to make it look like we've arrested you. And I love that that bit where he's just in the governor's office and like, why don't you give me some of that cake? The white cake with the Mm -hmm. sweet frosting. And like... It's 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 rather nice, and there, there's one. This is where we get another thing where well, this has to be the character lying because at one point Billy the Kid is hanging out with the governor and some of the other politicians, and he's shooting the candles off a candelabra. It's like, well, that's a good shooting, Billy, but you got three candles left, and you only got one, and you only got two bullets. So he shoots the candelabra, which turns the candelabra precisely ninety degrees, and then shoots all the other candles off with one bullet. <laughs> I mean, that is a real kind of flashy moment. I mean, kind of cool. I, I do want to point out in this film, Emilio Estevez's performance of Billy the Kid. I mean, clearly Emilio is having fun. I was reading how much, you know, historical research and stuff he did. And he w- really went to some of these towns that Billy the Kid, uh, to, to Lincoln and all this stuff and found these original buildings to get into character. But but this uh, Billy the Kid is not 
he's still a little bit of a loose cannon, but he's not quite as crazy as in the first movie, and it's nice to see that change in character. However, another member of the gang, Arkansas Dave Rudabaugh, played by Christian Slater, is um, more like Billy the Kid was in the first picture, I thought. You walk like me, you talk like me, you don't have an original bone in your body. <laughs> Listen to Shermometer right. critiquing the critic for more background on that one. Um, or even we, we put up not too long ago the classic sequel cast episode of The Two Jakes in which we oh do God. the whole episode with terrible Jack Nicholson impersonations. <laughs> I think it's still our least downloaded episode it, ever. It was our darkest hour. Uh, I, I had fun with that. I don't think our audience did, but... <laughs> well, anyway, yeah, but it turns but it turns out that uh, this whole like uh, arrest thing, it this whole fake arrest thing, was in fact a ruse, and that apparently the governor did not have any intention of uh, of uh, of pardoning him. He just wanted Billy the Kid out of the way. So the governor uh, rides off, leaving Billy the Kid, you know, trapped uh, in the sheriff's office. So Billy escapes, and this is one of those things where it could be could be a lie or could be convenient where he's like no something something a lot of folks don't know about me i got big wrists and small hands and he just slips right out of the handcuffs uh and by this point several of the other regulators including doc have been rounded up and have been put in this pit outside the sheriff's office waiting to get waiting to be hanged uh and uh billy the kid uh causes a ruckus uh, they do manage to escape. It's just, there were so many mob justice scenes. They all blend together in my mind. During this escape, is that part? Is that is that the initial mob justice scene? Or does that come later? That that's one of them because because they do make a point among the many people that are interested in Billy the Kid. There is the members of the Irish mob who want revenge over uh, what happened in the first film with the the Lincoln County War. And also, we we need to mention, and this becomes important in the plot of this movie. Uh, in the first movie, Pat Garrett, who who was a real guy, it, had a very brief kind of part. Maybe it was in one or two scenes, if memory serves. In the second one, they make a big deal at the beginning. Pat Garrett is one of Billy the Kid's gain, and a big part of the plot of this is how he becomes, uh, you know, kind of flips the table on on Billy and becomes the guy chasing him towards the end. Yeah, and that is something that did that did in fact happen. He uh, was he was given law enforcement powers, and because no one, at least according to him, no one knew Billy the Kid better than he did, he became the man in charge of apprehending Billy the Kid. And this is something else I, I, I found out. So he um, he ends up going to this newspaper man named Ashman Upson, who was also a real historical figure, uh, and he brings him on to, uh, he decides that, you know, Catching Billy the Kid's going to be famous, I want you to chronicle the whole endeavor. So he brings this newspaper man on him. Now, in, in as near as I can tell, in real history, they didn't meet up till later, but they did co-author a book about Billy the Kid. One thing that stands out, though, is that is that Upson in this movie is such a Jewish stereotype. He's nebbish, he's always kvetching, mm. he's he's ob- obsessed with his bowel movements. Like, on the one hand, I like that there's a Jewish character in a Western. On the other hand, damn. He's just a bundle of stereotypes with, until towards the end. Is being obsessed with how often you shit a Jewish stereotype? That one I wasn't... Well, it it is... 
well, general, I guess, health complaints ah, okay. is often yeah. a, a stereotype. Uh, and I guess for him, it just it manifests in always talking about his bowels. And it's just it's. I, I guess I like I again I like that there's a Jewish character in this movie. I I hate that he's just this ball of stereotypes. The only real and it's all and it's all just like lame comic relief in a movie that I think wants to be a comedy. Because if you'll notice, yeah. like the way the scenes are staged, they're staged like comedic scenes. They're always cutting to wide shots and reactions. I would say this movie overall is lighter in tone than the first one. I think that's a good call out because the first one it. it takes itself more seriously certainly at the beginning when um the terrence stamp character gets killed and it's a lot of you know betrayal and and yet in this movie i don't think there's any scene as interesting as the first one where they all get high off of peyote and have a vision quest yeah i'm actually i'm surprised that something like that didn't happen in this film and uh it, it as you mentioned it takes time for uh, the other surviving members of the game from the first one uh doc and um Chavez y Chavez, played by uh, Kiefer Sutherland and Lou Diamond Phillips, join the group because they get they get broken out of uh, they're they're imprisoned underneath in, in this kind of subterranean kind of kind of pit thing, and uh, that's where John Bon Jovi has his cameo. Yeah, he's just one of yeah, the one, of the, one of the guys in the pit. But yeah, and and from this point on, it really is just one thing after another. Episodic. Uh, yeah, it's just like little little sort of set pieces, and some of the set pieces work, some don't. But it's just it feels it feels kind of like we're going in circles until they remember. Oh yeah, this gang is being pursued by Garrett, um, and you know they they have they have some some ups and downs. Some do some do stand out. Like there's there's a there's an extended bit where uh, they meet up with a uh, they meet up with a uh, with a, a prostitute that. Uh, that Billy Kidd has a previous relationship with, and they they spend the night in the brothel. And there's, like, good and bad, because there's this greenhorn kid who is just, like, a homeless kid that gets brought into the gang, uh, who's, like, 14 years old or, or something, who he loses his virginity. And that's kind of a fun scene. We just see him leave one of the rooms, and he's got this bounce in his step, and he starts doing quick-draw <laughs> stuff in the mirror. I, I found that kind of... I, I found that... I guess that that's... that's that was a... I guess, for lack of a better term, sweet, sweet moment uh, in in a weird way like that. That registered, although at the same time, like Doc, who's married and has a kid, just like straight up jumps into bed with another woman, doesn't even think about it. I, I feel like there should have been some tension with that. Or he could have done a joke about it or something, yeah. Because uh, yeah, even then, initially, Doc, Doc's whole thing is he just wants to go back to New York where he's a teacher and a published poet. Uh, but he seems to forget about that pretty quick. Well, and then this 14-year-old who's part of the gang, uh, Tom O'Fulliard, played by Paul Zargetti, uh, Billy the Kid is protective of him. I can't say they do much with his character, but he is kind of also a mirror of what Billy the Kid was like in the beginning of that first Young Guns, where he's like a homeless guy who kind of gets taken under the wing of, of the, the group. Yeah, and he gets and he gets a pretty ignominious end because at the at the, uh, near near before the climax, there's this extended chase sequence uh, where they're running from Garrett and his posse, and uh, the Greenhorn gets shot and gets left behind, and it's not a quick death. I mean, we see him slowly bleed out under the gaze of Garrett and his posse. Uh, so, what do you think about um, Alan Ruck 
uh, who plays Henry French. Uh, he's probably best known as being the uh, the friend of Matthew Broderick in um, oh, what the hell is that John Hughes movie? I, I don't recall, but I I, I rather liked him because he's, you know, he, he's he's a uh, he's a farmer that lost his land to another baron, uh, and you know just and wants wants his revenge that's why he started riding with the regulators but there's this neat kind of run and gag where he really wants to make a name for himself like everyone in the posse has a cool nickname except him and he never gets recognized for any of the stuff he does <laughs> until the very, very end where Billy the Kid notices that he's loading he's he's loading some buckshot cartridges and just says, your name's Buckshot. You're Buckshot George. And he's like, but my name isn't even George. And, yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it sticks. It does. Um, one, one, one scene I think that works really well in this film is the, the, as you mentioned, in the second act where they're kind of going around in circles – they uh, they go to uh, sounds like one of Billy the Kid's uh, former mentors, uh, John Chisholm, played by James Coburn. And James oh, Coburn, he's so good. He's great, and and he was in westerns uh, back in the day, and he has you know a real nice the same kind of gravitas that like uh, Jack Palance had in the first film. Just he's not in many scenes, but when he is, he's like damn good, and you really get uh, Billy the Kid and and Chisholm facing off against each other. That that's a very Snake Plissken scene because mm-hmm. his, his whole thing is they need money to help because their plan is to go down to Mexico and once they're over the border you know they'll be they'll be scot free they you know the people can't pursue them and so they come to this guy and they have this whole story about how now the way we figure you still owe us like two hundred and fifty dollars or whatnot and uh, so uh, you're you're gonna pay us then we're gonna ride off and and he's like no I'm not I don't owe you a goddamn thing and he's got these two uh, these two Mexican guys with him and Billy the kid uh, says well here's 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 what I'm gonna do uh, f- uh, I'm gonna ki- for every five dollars you owe me I'm gonna kill one of your men but I'm gonna do it honest and he gets off of his horse and he takes off his he takes off his gun belt puts it in the sand and takes ten steps back. And he says, "Now, which one of your which one of your boys is is best with a gun?" And one of them stands forward. I am. He says, "All right. So here's what I'm going to do. Uh, I'm going to go for my gun. You can shoot me, but you better be quick, because I'm again. I'm going to kill one of your men for every five dollars I owe him." Uh, and so you you understand? I understand. And so he gets in this stance like he's going to go for the pistol. Then he just kind of says, "Bill," and Buckshot George just shoots the guy. Hmm. And then, like, he counts down, so, well, that's uh, 245. And then, you know, the other guy gets shot, that's 250. And eventually they just get run off, but that's a very Snake Plissken scene. It is, but it's... But he creates this elaborate shooting scenario just to get someone else to shoot somebody. But it's fun. I, you know, I really enjoyed it. Uh, You also have such, um... You get this kind of dopey scene with the... uh, Jane, uh, great house, the the whore that uh, Billy the Kid knows where they're all getting shot at, I think, at the whorehouse. Then she comes out naked and then rides rides off naked, kind of Lady Godiva style. Yeah, and and it's only backle nudity, uh, no frontal. But yeah, because no. when they find out she's hiding Billy the Kid, uh, they just declare, oh, well, suddenly we've decided that your den of ill repute can't be here. We're going to burn it down. But yeah, that's her that's her big dramatic exit. Until she comes, until she comes back later, and I don't know because on the like I 
on the one hand, th- there is a, a sort of certain there's a certain power to that scene, but on the other hand, is it just a cheap excuse to show nudity, which they avoided showing when people were were enjoying the attention of the of the sex workers? I mean, it, this is the most like chaste whorehouse in a western I've ever seen, but. It- <laughs> Actually, I take that back because, like in all the '50s movies, you know, they they don't really show anything either. But they also dance around the fact that they're often in houses of prostitution. Mm-hmm. But okay, so actually, I think that makes sense because her whole thing is that it's all very, very upmarket. And in fact, somebody even says, you know, I'll, t- I'll tell you what, how much, how much for, uh, how much for an evening uh, with one of your girls? Like, oh, oh, we d- we don't do that here. But if you want to have a shot of whiskey served to you by a fine southern lady in the privacy of one of our lounges, well, that'll cost you like fifteen yeah, dollars. Right, <laughs> like I, I do, lo- I do love those little like like respectability rituals. I think there's some some cool depth to that. I, I think but have they also, done a uh, bit. I think have they done a bit more with that character, that moment of her writing off nude alone and starting a bordello and stuff. I mean, that's almost a movie in itself. You know that that's true, and she does have a previous relationship with Billy that I think would have been nice to to have established. I think that's one of the the things is that a lot of characters that apparently have deep histories with Billy only show up when they're needed, and we don't get any of that history brought in. It's like only so many times can you say, "Well, I know a guy," before that becomes just dramatically dead. Um, but that's another thing is that there's another mob justice scene when they're hanging out in the bordello. Uh, you know, a bunch of people in hoods show up. Some of them, those hoods are pretty shitty and wouldn't conceal your identity. Some people are wrapped up like mummies. Uh, but they send in a deputy. A deputy goes in to negotiate with Billy the Kid. And the deputy's like, no, no, look. Uh, there's a mob out there. They're looking to hang somebody. I don't want to go through all this. I want to do this by the book. So how about you give me your Mexican Indian. They'll, they'll hang him. Uh, and while this is going on, they keep doing this. They keep like... Uh, they keep having Chavez take off his hat, his coat, various things, and they put the hat and the coat on the, the on the deputy. He's like, "Well, now I can talk to you man to man because you don't look like a politician." But yeah, that's that's agreeable to us. Uh, why don't Why don't we just do that? And uh, Billy the Kid just like fires off he he fires off his gun like and uh, no Chavez don't fires off his off his gun and they push the deputy. Uh, into the street, and all the people in the street think it's Chavez and just gun him down. Yeah, but bit of an ironic moment. Uh, and, and then they, it just is pure chaos as they ride yeah. free uh, and, and deal with the. Uh, I like the horses go through so much in this scene. I feel like a horse had to have been injured on set. Uh, but they do something that's actually pretty clever. I'm surprised you don't see more often in westerns where some fires have been started and they throw ammunition into the fires knowing that it's going to go off randomly and that helps cover their escape. I would like to give credit to um, the director of of this one, uh, Jeff Murphy. I think he makes the film overall look much better and certainly uses more dynamic camera movement than uh, Christopher Kane. Uh, who who directed the first one? I think this this is a better looking film. And, and it sometimes I feel it's too dynamic. Like whenever a, a window breaks or somebody falls through a window, the camera keeps rapidly changing angles in such a way that I think the persistence of vision gets lost. Uh, and there also is a lot of the uh, steady cam following people around as they're rolling around. I think to to get some more uh, movement to the scene. I mean, and this was the. 
you know, in the early 90s, the height of MTV, that MTV, the music videos certainly inspired editing and films. Uh, the, I would say the music by Alan Silvestri in this movie, while it ditches like the kind of rock angle with the guitars they did in the first film, uh, I would say the music in the first movie is more interesting. The music here is just like one leitmotif repeated into the ground. Well, something I noticed uh, about the music in this, so it's done... Um the music is done is again done by Alan Silvestri, who also did the music for Back to the Future mm-hmm. Three, which was also a western, yep. which came out. Uh, so year. that came out in May. Uh, Young Guns Two came out in August. The music in this movie sounds like the roughed draft of the music in Back to the Future Three, and it very well could have been. I mean, it's uh, composers will reuse ideas of music from other movies all the time. Like they have a style, or they have stuff they like using, or, or don't have a lot of time and just have to repurpose existing uh, music themes um I, I think it works okay but it's not at least the music in young guns one as anachronistic as it could be was changed more was more varied and and was something different i think this one just sounds a bit bland for my liking so something i wish this movie had more of is is garrett's pursuit of billy the kid because there are these neat moments where like we see how he gathers clues and how he he like he he tracks billy and there's like this bit where he found an old abandoned cabin where they stayed the night and there's a tobacco pouch hanging uh hanging from the uh hanging just just hanging from a, a tree branch is that's a tobacco pouch i gave billy the kids buffalo scrotum that was my first kill i shot this bull buffalo and like there's just this nice character moment of him remembering i guess for him what would have been better times yeah with, with garrett i mean at the beginning although they establish he's part of the game um you don't get much of a sense of, of friendship or, or or love or admiration between the two men so it's clearly a big deal that that he he turns uh, and and becomes uh, you know the the bad guy so to speak that's chasing Billy the kid in in pursuit, um, but it, it doesn't quite ring as a, have the punch you want it to. Yeah, he, I mean, he's doing a job he's been hired to do, but as far as like his emotional stakes. Mm-hmm. Every time he sees the aftermath of something Billy the Kid has done, it's like it's not turning him against Billy the Kid more. It's not making him a- angrier. It's just his response always seems to be an exasperated, oh, Billy. Yeah, it's kind of flat. It doesn't, um, it's a little frustrating. Like, I like what they're they're trying to do, and I think it, it makes uh, the plot of this movie have a bit more going for it, I think, than the plot of the, the first one. Yeah, and... And when later in the movie, there's even a moment where he offers Billy the Kid the chance to escape, and says, "I'll just say I shot you, and we couldn't recover the body. You know, it, it just you stay low. No one has to know." And that that comes as absolutely no surprise, right? And like, why didn't he offer that earlier? Or it's it it, it just seems like a draft or two away from what it should be. It's not quite as sharp. It's not yeah. that that relationship between the two really should have been developed more um uh, i'm trying to think like one scene i did like i wish they would have done more at this is is uh you have christian slater as the the arkansas guy and uh he finds an indian burial burial ground is kind of screwing with it and he gets into a fist fight with uh lou diamond phillips oh no he gets into a knife fight. a knife fight yes and that fight is actually like 
pretty brutal. I I fully expected one or both of those characters to die. The fact that they both leave survive that scene was a surprise to me. But there's this amazing moment where um, there's a whole reason Arkansas is is messing with with the great this the Apache graveyard is he points out there there are people who will pay you good money for the bones of Native Americans, which regrettably was a thing that happened at the time. Um, and he thinks, well, well, we'll just we'll pick a few bones, we'll be rich. And Chavez, no, we are not going to do that. And everyone is on Chavez's side. So when Arkansas removes stones from a cairn and pulls out a femur, that's what gets the fight going. And it's pretty bloody, but the, the climax of the fight, uh, Arkansas goes to stab Chavez. Chavez raises his arm and catches the knife in his arm. The knife goes all the way through Chavez's arm, uh, and that's where he's able to get a good cut in on Arkansas, and that's what ends the fight. Chavez would appear to be indestructible because him having a knife go all the way through his arm has has no ill effects on him whatsoever. He's still using that arm. We never see that arm bandaged, bandaged up. And yet, when Chavez is shot during one of the pursuits... He walks around with a bullet in his gut for days, possibly weeks, until finally, and it might not, and that's the other thing, it might not even kill him, uh, because the real Chavez did survive until the 20s, like a lot of these men, but in the movie, Chavez early on keeps talking about how when you die, the spirit horse comes and will carry you to the next life, and... It's, uh, towards the end of the movie, he rides off on a horse, but we cut to this weirdly painted horse just riding through a black void, which would seem to imply he met his end, but who knows? Yeah, I got that same uh, implication as well, and and overall, his, his character just seems like window dressing. He has a lot. He has a lot less to do than in the first film, other than that scene we just talked about where he uh, he gets into a knife scuffle. Um. It, He's, uh, you know, I like the actor. I like the character. I wish more would have been, more would have been done with him. Yeah, and, and this, and actually, the scene with the knife fight that ties into like Ashman's only, only, I, I guess like her, her, heroic or, or, or good scene is uh, they. Garrett's posse they find the same they find the same Apache burial burial ground and as they're inspecting it and seeing the evidence of the knife fight a bunch of Apaches show up and have them surrounded and since they're all hanging around a desecrated grave the Apache are going to gun the whole posse down but right before they pull the trigger Ashman comes out from behind a rock pulling his pants up and it turns out he he can speak the Apache language and we never learn what he says but he talks him down, and he gets the the uh, the posse out of there alive. Must have been quite the speech. Yeah, and he, and is any and even then, the only response the posse has uh, is they say, uh, "I think I need to have." Is, is one is Garrett's assistant says, "I think I need to have a movement," which is what Ashman, you know calls, you know, his bowel movements, and Garrett says, "I believe I need a movement as well," and like that's <laughs> it. Like they don't. I, I wish there was a there was a scene where they showed some respect for Ashman because they do spend the whole movie just if he if he stops to piss one more time I swear I'm gonna leave him in the dirt like like Ashman saves all of their lives and it does not seem to change the relationship between them at all. No, I mean he is he is treated like like shit the whole movie basically as a as a, as a punchline and not not a good one at that. 
Um, you do, you know, the Kiefer Sutherland character does die pretty early on in the film, which kind of surprised me, but it's similar to how Charlie Sheen's character died pretty early on in the first one. And of course, in the, in real history, Doc lived until the 1920s. Um, but yeah, he, there's a shootout in a Doc gets shot in a shootout in a rundown mission. And he, you know, has this whole, let's finish the game. And he runs out in a blaze of glory. And while he's getting shot up, that's when the rest of the gang rides out. Yeah. Um... And, and this is, oh, and this is also shortly after they discover, so Billy the Kid's been talking about how they've been taking the secret trail down south to get to Mexico and avoid the law. And right before then, Doc figures out, there was no trail, was there, Billy? You made this up just to get us back together. Um, and of course, this is when Billy, like a sociopath, moves the goalpost, says, oh, well, now we'll go up to Canada. It's like, yeah, that's several thousand miles in the opposite direction. Which which will take them right back through the territory, the New Mexico territory, they're trying to get away from. Exactly. It's just ludicrous, ludicrous, ludicrous. But you know, and this all this all leads to they're in this they're in this town in Mexico, and this is when Garrett finds them. There's this whole really on the nose image uh, with the pinata. This is when uh, this is when Henry gets the name Buckshot George, uh, and I'm not sure how the mechanics of this work because you know Garrett gives Billy the his chance to escape. Billy turns it down. They, uh, we cut outside. We hear some gunfire, and then we just cut to a funeral as as a, a as a funeral is given for Billy the Kid. Who the hell is in the casket? Uh, maybe he he dressed him up in his clothes. Like like they do make a deal that uh, they they make a point that oh you know one of the horses is missing, so presumably Billy got away. Um, but even that like isn't quite played right. That should be. I don't know, maybe more gradual reveal, or maybe even during the funeral, the casket kicks open and it's empty. Yeah, because yeah, because we don't we don't see the casket's empty. We don't see like Billy sneaking away. Mm-hmm. Like like the way the way it's framed, it's like it, 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 we Billy the kid like we, Billy the kid was probably killed. The only we only have we only have uh, oh excuse me, uh, bushy bills word to go on and this this is one of those moments where having an unreliable narrator gets very 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 frustrating because if his story is he's Billy the kid and he's alive why doesn't he tell how he escaped this situation especially when the story has been so aggrandizing for Billy the kid up to this point hmm. like there's no heroic shootout it's an, it's an anticlimax it is it's not satisfying. that's what it is it's an anticlimax Pretty. So yeah, and then we cut back to the the 1950s, uh, and uh, you know, Billy and the the lawyer says, "Well, well, uh, Bushy Bill, do you have any proof?" And he's like, "You know, I, I don't have proof. I just have my scars." He asked me if I have scars. I have plenty. Not that we see a single scar on him, uh, and he just like rides off. And that's when we get. The worst that one of the worst things a movie can do a movie showing you clips of itself mm-hmm. with title cards that go up and, and give everybody's uh, everybody's fates, including an actual fact that Bushy Bill died uh, a few weeks later. Yeah, um, I thought it was interesting. They said Pat Garrett's book about Billy the Kid was considered a failure. 
which I'm like yeah, that that is true. Uh, it was not. It did not sell well. Uh, it established a lot of things in the Billy the Kid legend, but it just it didn't sell in its time. An interesting bit of trivia, you know, James Coburn has a small part in this show. Uh, in 1971, or 73, he starred as Pat Garrett in Sam Peckinpah's film, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. Huh. And Billy the Kid was played by Chris Christopherson. Yeah, I guess, my, coming away from this movie, uh, par- parts I liked, parts, parts I didn't like, uh, parts that were very disturbing okay so uh, i guess i'm i'm not qualified to judge whether whether the movie's portrayal of ashman is outright anti-semitic or not though it is very reliant on stereotypes there's only two african-american characters in this movie and neither one has any lines yeah there wasn't was there people of color in the first one i don't i mean you had um, no not at all uh well well, except 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 for chavez well and you had Kiefer sutherland's bride who didn't have much dialogue yeah, it's just. Oh, that's true. Yeah, it's just. It's there. There's not enough good in this movie to cancel out the bad. And even if there was, it would still be kind of a disjointed mess. I, I'm going to have to give this one a sequel. No, I don't. I don't want to see what else they would do with this franchise if it, it continued. I'll give it a sequel. Yes, I liked it. You know, slightly better than the first film. Uh, really. Ni- Neither of the Young Gun movies I was crazy about, but I think the the Pat Garrett thing gives the story a bit more oomph. And um, although I think some moments in the first film worked better, I think overall this one it has has better pacing, and it was uh, yeah, it just had just enough to just make it over the edge for me. You also have a very young Vigo Mortensen as John Poe. Oh yeah, in this, who has like maybe two lines of dialogue or something. Um, so there you go, and uh, and I, I pulled up the domestic box office for um, 1990 when this came out. Uh, Young Guns 2 was at number 30, above movies like Rocky Five and Gremlins 2, The New Batch, but below movies... Really? Yeah, but below movies like RoboCop 2 or Look Who's Talking To. Uh, and for context, the top three films of 1990 were Home Alone, Ghost, and Dances with Wolves. Huh. Actually, where uh, where does Back to the Future Three fall on that chart? Um, number eleven. Hmm. Okay. So it made more than another forty-eight hours in Three Men and a Little Lady, <laughs> <laughs> and The Godfather Three, for that matter. Wow. All right. So, um, yeah, for pitch a sequel, I think what what I had in mind was. Uh, even you mean you mentioned it's like a, an anticlimax at the end when uh, Billy the Kid leaves uh, leaves alive, uh, but you also don't really get to see a satisfying ending to Billy the Kid meeting with the attorney mm-hmm. and getting pardoned or not or whatever happens, um, and so mine would would pick up where it, it leaves off just be about the old Billy the Kid and the attorney on a on a road trip. To try to get to the governor? To get to the governor to try and get pardoned. <laughs> and um, and the end of the movie would be, you know, after many wacky adventures, including they'd have to stay at, like, a truck stop version of a whorehouse. <laughs> like, kind of, maybe they would go to a Wild West stunt show and Billy the Kid would roll, his, old Billy the Kid would roll his eyes. 
but it, it would end with them going into the governor's office and the door closing behind them, and you, you'd hear the old man voice over again. Uh, but then, did I get that pardon or not? Well, that's a different story. <laughs> Setting up for part four, of course. Well, I, I want to continue the thread with uh, with Bushy Bill Roberts. So, uh, my Young Guns 3 uh, is going to be Bushy Bill Roberts uh, on his deathbed talking to uh <laughs> talking to you know r- reporters like there's yeah. one story billy the kid you haven't heard oh, yes. and he's gonna look even older I mean, he's gonna look outright like the crypt keeper with his old age makeup and he will look anytime we cut back to him which we will at several points he gets older and older and older till he'll be just a skeleton in his last scene and he, he's gonna tell the story of what he was doing between the time of his reported death and when he was uh, when he met with the lawyer and we're going to discover that billy the kid was traveling the world righting wrongs and how he single-handedly won world war one and in world war two he was the one who killed hitler but he did it on a ufo because he also thwarted a martian invasion and the story's going to get bigger and more impractical and is going to clash more and more with the historical record including claiming that he was at one point president of the united states um yeah yeah he will claim that he was john f kennedy and that that was just an alias he assumed to become president and he faked his own death uh on the grassy knoll and uh then the story's going to keep going right up until he meets the reporter the way he tells it he incidentally meets the reporter just after he defeated the devil in a fiddle contest in the middle of the desert and that's how he won the horse he was riding that's the devil's horse um and uh, and with his dying breath on the deathbed he finishes uh he he finishes typing the script for the original Young Guns, and and his will says that that must be put in a safety deposit box and then made into a movie in the eighties. Hmm. Wow. And you could even follow that up with a fourth film where Billy the Kid's bastard child uh, is called to the set of the Young Gun movies from the eighties, and is uh. uh to be like an advisor. Yeah, yeah, as a technical advisor and, and somehow is taken over by the spirit of the original Billy the Kid and goes crazy and starts <laughs> picking people off like a ten little Indian story on a movie set. You're gonna say I had like I had some sympathy for Billy the Kid in the first film. I had no sympathy for him in this film. He's just too much of he's just too much of the sociopathic golden boy. Hmm. Interesting. So Yeah, um, well, I think it's it's time for another segment. What? Which one would that be? What you're watching? Ah, well, so I watched uh, two movies uh, that I want to talk about because they both share a lot in common, uh, and I saw the 2019 Lion King and the 2019 Aladdin. Uh, you know, I've seen neither of those, and in fact, the one I'm going to talk about is a different Disney live-action remake, so it happens to fit in thematically, so let's go. Um, yeah, so Lion King, I, 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 I didn't see either of those movies you mentioned that you've seen, but just looking at the trailers, I don't understand why they decided to make it so realistic-looking, or even why to remake it at all. The first one's a perfectly fine story. 
So I I have heard three views on why these movies might exist. Um, Money. One, I have heard that these movies are just sort of an excuse to test out new new technology, like with the CGI used in The Lion King and whatnot. Um, I have also heard that these movies are made because they are easy money. Yes. And I've also heard, and this seems the most plausible. So, and we've talked about this before about like the public domain uh, and how it's getting harder and harder for works to move into the public domain because every time Mickey Mouse would enter the public domain, Disney puts pressure on Congress and the laws change. So, because uh, a lot of the classic Disney movies are based on public domain properties uh, and fairy tales and whatnot, the notion I've heard is that they are making these live-action remakes as a potential check against any of those older movies falling into the public domain. Because... So they're starting to reach further back in time for the remakes, like with Lady and the Tramp, which which has come out. I think it's only a matter of time before they go back real far and do, uh, and do Snow White. Um, if they can make a live-action movie that is pretty much exactly like the animated movie... Uh, it prevents derivative works from being made from any old animated movies that enter the public domain because they can say, well, maybe it is just like the public domain movie, but it's also just like this new movie. And so they'll they'll catch you for copyright for that. I'm, I'm, Con- convoluted, I know, but it sounds plausible to my ear. I'm reminded a bit of a, a bit of trouble that it, it might have been a Warner Brothers film. I don't quite remember, but there was that same Raimi movie, Oz the Great and Powerful. Oh yeah! Did you ever see that? I think we talked about it on the show, but maybe I had only we, seen it at the time. Yeah, we we did the sort of uh, the patch together Oz trilogy of the Wizard of Oz, Return to Oz, and Oz the Great mm-hmm. and Powerful. Except, uh, I did not see the Oz the Great and Powerful because the only theater I could find that That's had right. it had closed down the one theater <laughs> that was screening that movie due to due to needing to make some repairs and renovations. Gosh, real, so I ended up seeing Oblivion yeah, instead. Yeah, it was real bad luck. But uh, and anyhow, in that movie, um, they had to make sure the, the color green of The Wicked Witch of the West was a different color from the 1930s film. A different shade of green. Interesting. And, and I also think of uh, when you mentioned your point, like Frankenstein, right? You can't have the bolt in the necks. Unless you're Universal, and of course the Monsters could, because that was done by Universal, the TV show. Oh, true. Yeah, that, that's one of those one of those things that Universal has a uh, has a clamp on. Um, so, I mean, with this, uh, with the Lion King, um, is is that one of your favorite of the old Disney cartoons? Or, I mean, it's really. I don't. I don't know if I would say it's my favorite, but I, it's it's the '90s Lion King is is very entertaining. Although there's copyright issues there uh, because it's almost identical to Kimba. Osamu Tezuka's uh, Jungle King manga, which uh, was released in America in the '70s. Uh, the animated version was released in America in the '70s under the name Kimba the White Lion. Um, to, to the point where they're actually to secure its Japanese release, they had to reach a settlement with Tezuka's estate. Uh, but that's a story for another that's time. Funny. But but yeah, I, I, I find it very entertaining. And and what about this new one? Did you think that the graphics were distracting? Did it did the the lip sync on the well, mouth work for you? Um, does it have as many of the well, musical sequences? For both for both 
Aladdin and the Lion King, I just found them very flat and deflated. Mm-hmm. And in the case of the Lion King, they try so hard to make the characters look like anatomically correct animals that a lot of their personality the personality of the character design and in their acting is just drained out. Um, a lot of the character it's hard to tell a lot of characters apart. Hmm. Scar's scar is barely visible. Oh, weird. Um, the, and also, like, with the, with the musical numbers, they make some weird choices. Um, like, among other things, when Scar does Be Prepared, not only does he sing talk rather than actually sing, they cut out half the song. That's too bad. I think Be Prepared is one of my... Uh, favorites. I mean, I'm, I'm a sucker for Disney bad guys anyway, but that's one of my favorite numbers in that show. I'll go so far as to say that's my favorite villain song. My uh, my grandpa thought that song was rap when he took me to see The Lion King in the theater, which <laughs> it's not. It's kind of spoken wordish. I could see. I could give you that because uh, um, for at least part of the song, Jeremy Irons' voice is doubled by Jim Cummings. Yes, because he has a very, very limited range. And I guess that's the thing, is the actor who plays Scar can sing, but then they don't use his voice. Um, or they don't they, they don't let him sing. I think it's cool they but use people of color in the new one for the voices. You know, likewise, it's just the staging is very, very bland. The stages are barely choreographed. When it, when the characters sing, they're just walking through a, mm. walking through an environment. They don't really... The way they move is not at all interesting, Uh which, which also really hurts, like, can you feel the love tonight? Can you feel the love tonight? It's just Simba and Nala just kind of walking. Uh, and it's also uh, in broad daylight. It's the thing, they sing the song, Can You Feel the Love Tonight, in the middle of the day. There, There's also a, um, what do you call it? I, I heard the soundtrack album, and Elton John does a new, like, end credit song. Huh. I didn't say through the end oh, credits, I, I, so I must have missed that. And um, what do you think of, like, some of the lyrics seem different for uh, Hakuna Matata, or they put in some different one-liners in there? They they did, cha- they did change some of the one-liners, which, I, I, it's, very, it's like, very forgettable, which is a shame, because Timon, uh, Timon and Pumbaa, Billy Eichner, uh, Oh, Seth Rogen is the other one. Uh, Seth Rogen, yeah, Seth Rogen. They are both really, really good in those roles, Mm. and they play off of each other really well. In fact, the the only thing the only thing that I feel like works better in the the 2019 Lion King than in the uh, 90s Lion King is the scene where Pumbaa is used to distract the hyenas. They come up with a really, really good joke. That that I think just works much better than the hula dance from the original the original movie. The gag mm. is expertly timed and acted, and is really really clever. What about the uh... oh, what is it? Ch- Aladdin? No, um, James Earl Jones returns as Mufasa. He is he's great. Yeah. I, like he, he's great. It's n- he's no better than he was in the nineties. Does his voice sound um, pretty much the same? I don't think I've heard him in much lately. Per, the, the voice is the same, although the performance is the f- performance is a little bit looser. But I think that's because James Earl Jones has kind of gotten to the point in his life and his career where he doesn't have to care. <laughs> yeah. So like he's not being quite as imperious. 
but he still he, st- he still sounds sort of very wise and fatherly uh, when he speaks. And, and what about Aladdin? You you have Will Smith as the genie, and the genie, of course, in the cartoon was Robin Williams, and uh, they have quite different comic uh, sensibilities and, and timing. So one one thing I can say, they don't try to com- the uh, Robin Williams genie does not try to compete, or sorry. Uh, Will Smith's genie does not try to compete with Robin Williams' genie. They don't just try to do the same thing, and I think that's a very wise choice. Uh, they they let Will Smith be a bit be more of himself. Uh, but the Aladdin, it's just such a small movie. Like hmm. the like, it just every, everything just feels sh- shrunk down for for no reason. And uh, Will Smith as the genie is kind of half good. Like clearly, they're holding him back. But he clearly wants to camp it up. When he starts to camp it up, his genie is very, very fun. But then they rein it in before he goes too far, and then it's just not interesting. Uh, like they they don't they don't play on Will Smith's strengths, and I and I think that hurts it. Andy Iago everything, everything is not feels Gilbert Godfrey, surprised. right? No, it's just it's just a he's just a parrot. He doesn't talk. Well, he says like one or two words at a time, usually just repeating something someone had just said. That's disappointing. So, I thought Gilbert so, is one of the best uh, things of that first film. It would have been great if they had brought him back or or recast Iago but still give him lines. Instead, you know, he's just a parrot and his, his involvement in the movie is incidental. He doesn't do anything. Whereas Iago in the 90s film does have an active hand in the story, even though he's working for Jafar. Um and like to, to give you an example of how sort of small things are, uh, the the whole Prince Ali number where they make a parade through the town, when they at the end of the climax of that song they cut to a wide shot, the parade has moved half a block, mm-hmm. and only takes up about a block. Wow! It, it just makes you realize how small and unimpressive it is. Did, did they keep the Jafar musical number? Uh, no, no, that was cut. Mm. But how does it look when they're uh, in the genie form? Because people, I remember when the trailer came out, people were kind of making fun of it. It's not. It's not bad. Yeah. Uh, it looks much better in the film than it does in the trailer. Uh, clearly, they that was an unfinished render that was used in the trailer, or something they had to throw together. Uh, when he's in his genie form, I overall I think it works. But they keep having him turn into a human, and he just kind of looks silly mm. when whenever he's just straight up in in human form. Uh, they also give they also give the genie a love story, which kind of works, but I think it only works because the woman he has a relationship with does such a just such an intriguingly weird performance. Weird. So I mean, out of those two, which would you recommend? I guess I can't, in good conscience, recommend either. But I guess the the Aladdin one visually has more going on, and does have and and does have Will Smith, who is still who is still very charismatic and very charming, even when he's playing a role that doesn't use all of his strengths. But I mean, they're both they're both totally unnecessary. Um, I can only assume these movies exist because of some ulterior motive by the company. Yeah, I wouldn't mind watching the the Tim Burton Dumbo one. Uh, I'll have to see if that's on Disney Plus or whatever when that premieres uh, this coming week. Oh, that's right. That was the other one that came out that same. So three year. in one year is especially lazy. But uh, speaking of Disney, well, no, no, four because Lady and the Tramp. But that's that's not theatrical, but still. Well, it's not theatrical, but it's the exact same True. thing. True. Yep, yep, yep. Um, so I mean, so one thing I saw. Uh, was a also like a Disney live action version of a cartoon was uh, Maleficent. Oh, how is that? 
good. You know, I'm going to go see the sequel later today because we just need a reason to get out of the house and we have coupons for free tickets. So um, we're going to see the second one, Maleficent, Something of Evil. I don't know what it's called. Uh, but but this first one, Mistress of Evil is the new one. Uh, but th- this first one, Maleficent, I think it's good. You know, part of it, uh, more than I remembered, actually, is a retelling of Sleeping Beauty. But it's also like a Maleficent origin story. And I think that the twist mm. and the things they add to the story are really smart. And it's uh, that it does not do a blow-for-blow, scene-for-scene, shot-for-shot remake of the original and leave it at that. I think is is admirable and, and Sleeping Beauty has always been one of my favorites of the old Disney cartoons. Um, I'll go so far as to say it is my favorite. Is it? Yeah. It and you they use you know some of that same imagery of course with the Maleficent herself with the horns and uh, um, the the thorns around the castle and, and things like that. But they also and the dragon. But they play with other things too and. Uh, it, it, Somewhat surprisingly, some of it's even a metaphor for rape, which I wasn't expecting. Um, it gets dark. Huh. I guess I guess that that is that is one I've been. It's it's one I've been interested in checking out, but I've also just been so so hesitant because I like the animated film so much. Like I, I'm I'm worried it's only going to dissatisfy. Uh, I I think you'll you'll be surprised. I think it's worth uh, sussing out. Um, the, the one thing I am not crazy about is uh, it, it does have the red, green, and blue fairies like like from the film, but when they're fairies, uh, Flora, Fauna, and Merryweather. Um, yeah, in this one they have different names: Knotgrass, Thistlewit, and Flittle. Um, why you would change the names and they don't even call each other by the names that much? It doesn't really matter. But uh, <laughs> when they're fairies, it's this like big head little body CG thing that looks kind of terrifying, but for a lot of the movie, they're just actresses and dresses, you know? Um, so w- when they're in the CG tiny fairy forms, it's, it's unpleasant and their voices are pitched up higher, which is an effect. I just loathe. Um, <laughs> you know, little body, big head CGI. I feel like the only time it's ever really worked, strangely enough, was one of the first times it happened in the late nineties there was a TV miniseries of Alice in Wonderland and Martin Short played the Mad Hatter and it's a completely unconvincing effect but it looked like it looks hideous but they clearly decided oh well let's just make it look more hideous so they play up how weird it looks and they give him some makeup appliances that makes it such a like it it makes it look like he is insane in both body and mind and that makes the big (laughs) little body CGI work for him yeah um a notable thing about Maleficent is, you know, unlike the original, the music isn't uh, ripped off of Tchaikovsky, uh, but in the end credits, you get a cover of Once Upon a Dream by Lena Del Rey, who I think has a really flat voice. So a mildly spooky cover. Um, but no, I overall, I liked it. I'm curious to see what they do with the sequel, because the way things end here, I think, kind of wraps things up on a bow. Um... So it's it, it's better than uh, than than you would think. Uh, for some reason, that the, the king I don't know. Why I say for some reason uh, the king Stefan is uh, the adult is played by Charlotte Copley, who was the lead in District Nine. Did you ever see District Nine? Yes, I did. Yeah. I enjoyed it. In this one, his his accent is kind of all over the place. Sometimes it's thick Irish. Sometimes it's not. Uh, but he 
he does a good job. And yeah, I, I would I would recommend Maleficent. It's it's um it's well done. It, it's dark. Uh, the casting of Angelina Jolie and how they do the makeup with the extra cheekbones uh, is just really striking. I'll I'll give him I'll give him credit. It is a it is a good design. Although that being said, I feel like she needs no makeup to play that part. Well, people said the same about Jack Nicholson and the Joker, and they gave him sort of cheekbones as well. Yeah, although that en- that enhanced what he already had. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, I haven't seen the Joker movie. Speaking of which, but I've heard good things. Will I? I I think it's inevitable. We're both going to end up seeing it at some point. Uh, yes, it's safe to say. All right. Well, we have a sequel scene. Do we not? Uh yes, we do. So, uh, putting uh, this into uh, context. So, this is. Uh, I believe this is shortly after they find the uh, the uh, scrotum tobacco pouch. Yep. Uh, this is Pat Garrett talking with uh, with uh, John W. Poe, and John W. Poe is like he's he's a he's a G man, right? He's a yeah, he he's a government man uh, who is working with Garrett. Okay, so what he's been assigned to help. What part him. do you want to play? Uh, I will do I will do Poe. Okay, I'll do Pat Garrett. Um, and they're both on horses next to each other, and uh, all right. It's all right. We've got time. We'll go back through El Royale. Well, that's convenient. What? The kid will be long gone. Maybe that's what you want, Pat. What I want is for you to cork your goddamn government mouth, mister. And next time you address the common, I will put you on your prissy little ass. That is something I like. I love how he says, address me common. Yep. And uh, by using his first name, that's such a just a great archaic turn of and phrase. And I like the thin blonde mustache on John W. Poe, as played by Vigo <laughs> Mortensen. Like he stands out. He stands out a lot. He does. He doesn't have a lot to do, but even then, he has the the interesting face, and you can see that there's something there, you know. And, and certainly, he later did Lord of the Rings and all those things. Uh, grew into a great actor, indeed. He was also in a one of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre sequels. I believe the third one, maybe something like that. Okay, great. Well, um, next time on Sequel Cast Two, we're doing our delayed um, horror movie series <laughs> with uh, with a look at the good old um, trilogy of uh, Dracula movies from Universal. So Dracula, just in time for Thanksgiving, it's right. going to be our monster mashed potatoes uh, yes. trilogy. I want to suck your gravy, as, as they say. Oh, that's disgusting. Um, Dracula, Bride of Dracula. No, Dracula's Daughter and uh, Dracula's Son of Dracula. All through the castle, all the monsters got lurky, sneaking up on the Thanksgiving turkey. I did Monster Mash recently at karaoke, and uh, it was nice. really quite... Uh, I hadn't heard it in a while, so trying to do it in time I think is tricky. Although it's it's spoken word, it's not that hard, but... Uh, Bobby Pickett did a lot of uh, variations on the Monster Mash, and there's a good, I believe, Mr. Show sketch we used to watch quite a bit. Oh, yeah, the probings about the history of monster parties. Yeah, watch that sketch. It's from their final season. It is so well-observed and comprehensive, and they have like six Monster Mash ripoffs that they made up that they play that are so perfect. Yeah, um... It was a Halloween shindig, everybody's invited! It was a <laughs> Halloween shindig, everybody was frightened! God. 
This is Graveyard Smash. Uh, some people might wondering why we're not throwing House of Dracula in there, and that's because that's really part of another series, continuity as limited as it is in those movies, but that's more of like a Frankenstein versus the Wolfman and, and House. Maybe next year. Yeah, maybe next year. We'll round that out. Um, so, um, yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at M-A-T-W-B-T. You can follow me at Internet Mayor. Check out the show uh, website at SequelCast2.com and uh, write us a nice review on the Apple Podcast app. You can also listen to us on Stitcher at Stitcher.com. Listen to us on Stitcher. So, uh, for SequelCast2, this is Matt. (laughs) This is Thresher. Y'all can kiss my ass, White Oaks. Pew, pew, pew. (laughs) Well, that was a good one. All right.